Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello is perhaps the greatest scandal and sea story of the first half of 19th century America that nearly everyone has forgotten. It led to a court-martial, endless headlines, a fistfight in a meeting of the presidential cabinet, and quite possibly to the foundation of the United States Naval Academy. And given that nearly everyone who went to sea in the early American Republic seemed to know one another, there was one degree of separation or less between this story and James Fenimore Cooper, Herman Melville, Richard Henry Dana Jr., Commodore Matthew Calberth Perry, Captain Charles Stewart, and future Confederate Naval Captain Raphael Semmes. It was nothing less than an attempted mutiny aboard the USS Summers in November of 1842 in the Mid-Atlantic, led by, of all the people in the United States of America, the son of the United States Secretary of War, who supposedly wanted to become a pirate. With me to discuss this incredible story is James Delgado, historian and underwater archaeologist, whose new book is The Curse of the Summers, The Secret History Behind the U.S. Navy's Most Infamous Mutiny. James Delgado, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let's begin at sea. The captain of the Summers is what's his who, what's his name and and who are the then and let's begin with the moment that the captain it receives word of this attempted mutiny. Let's start by saying that Summers is a very small ship. It's a little better than 100 feet long, and it has over 100 on board. It's crowded. And in a small cabin at the very stern of the ship is Captain Alexander Slidell Mackenzie. This is his first full command at sea, and he, as a social reformer, has embarked on a voyage with a group of boys, ranging from 13 into the late teens, and a few young adults, as well as a couple older jaded hands, to teach these boys not only how to become good sailors, but also to become men, and men who live to a moral code, and who are educated. Imagine his shock then, when his officers come down and tell him that past midshipman Philip Spencer has been planning a mutiny, that he's confided to the purser, James Wales, that he has a plot to kill the officers and take command of Summers and turn it into a pirate ship. <laughs> Mackenzie scoffs. He doesn't like Philip Spencer. The 19-year-old is a troublesome sort, and he doesn't quite believe it, but then he thinks about it, and he grows very grim. He puts on his dress coat and his hat, and he climbs out of his cabin and onto the deck and walks up to young Spencer. <clears throat> Mr. Spencer, I learn that you aspire to the command of the Summers. The 19-year-old stiffens. Sir, sir, it's but a joke. A joke that may well cost you your life. This is joking on a forbidden subject. And with that is set into motion a series of actions that over the next day will play out with fatal importance. So about where have they been and where are they at the moment when Mackenzie confronts Spencer? Summers had just been launched and fitted out as a fast clipper-formed brig, two-masted vessel built for speed, and with that was sent with dispatches, orders, you know, notes, and whatnot to pass along to the commanding officer 
of the African squadron then cruising off the coast of Africa in an effort to interdict the international slave trade, which is illegal. Summers is not a regular man of war. It is not only small, but it is a essentially a training ship. It has been filled with all of these young boys, and it has left New York, sailed across the Atlantic, stopped briefly in the Azores, and then in Madeira, and now Pasquinchal is heading down to the coast of Africa. It is constantly chasing the other ship, which it never quite meets up with. But as it stops along the way, there are a number of incidents where the captain's authority is tested, if you will, by a ship full of teenage boys, all sorts of disquieting things are happening, sometimes out of earshot or eyeshot of the captain. But in that, somewhat complicit, it seems, are some of his officers, that is, his petty officers. In particular, the bosun's mate, Samuel Cromwell, a big, hulking brute of a man, whom the captain has administer punishment to a number of these boys. And in that context, all of a sudden, with Spencer consistently mocking the captain, putting on his coat and hat one night and coming up and imitating his voice and giving orders, to referring to Captain Mackenzie behind his back as a humbug, long before Ebenezer Scrooge ever made that a famous phrase, a humbug in those times meant a, a fraud, a charlatan. And as well, with the initials of Alexander Slidell Mackenzie, a name that the captain was very proud of. He'd been born Alex Slidell, but when his... Mother's brother had died without issue. Just before the man passed, he promised the boy, the young man then, Alexander Slidell, his, his estate if Slidell would keep the family name. And so as Alexander Slidell Mackenzie uh, married into a prominent naval clan, the Perrys, known to many, an author of minor repute, uh, witty travelogues is what he, he, he liked to write, uh, he, he takes great pride in that name. And so when Spencer says, oh, ASM, wouldn't it be far more appropriate if those initials were ASS? You can see the stage is set for, for something on this long, frustrating voyage, which also is played out with Captain Mackenzie increasing with Cromwell the amount of violence he's meeting out to these boys. I mean, these guys are getting beaten regularly with a short strand of rope called a horse or a colt occasionally flogged with a cat of nine tails for a variety of fences. And ultimately, when everything spills out into the open, what people see is that the amount of discipline administered, in some cases, not only just bruising or tearing the flesh on a back, but leading to the flowing of blood, sometimes on the backs of boys who are 14, 15, 16, has come with regularity and not only with that, with increased amounts of, of beatings and sometimes for seemingly the most minor of offenses. But the offense that bothers Mackenzie the most, it seems, is filthiness. Many of the boys are flogged for filthiness, particularly after a stop at Madeira when the captain wouldn't allow them to go ashore. Now, filthiness in that time is the Navy's word for masturbation. So, all of this is playing out on a tiny ship packed with teenage boys. Here's Philip Spencer, who doesn't like the captain and who mocks him. And Philip has his own troubled history. We'll get to that, but yeah. Yes, but with that, um, now the captain hears this and he's enraged. He orders Spencer ironed. He takes away his sword, has him handcuffed, put into what they called darbies. And with that, then sets out 
to question others. And soon, both Cromwell and another former petty officer, Elisha Small, are also both arrested. And the captain begins to look, and everywhere he looks, he sees shifty looks. He sees men muttering amongst themselves. He sees the boys gathering in knots. And he becomes increasingly sure that there is a plot, and he needs to get to the bottom of it. And so he, he turns to his first officer and says, find out what's going on. Convene a court of inquiry and start questioning these people. This is a very New York ship, isn't it? I mean, because uh, Slido McKenzie is a New Yorker, and I saw his first officer as Gansevoort, which is a celebrated New York name. Um, so, and it's Gansevoort who leads the investigation? It is Gert Gansevoort who leads the investigation with the other officers. He convenes a board, basically, of inquiry. It's not quite a court-martial yet. Mm-hmm. But with that, um, they begin to bring boys and some of the others down to ask them questions. In particular, starting with Purser Wales, who says that on one late night, Philip Spencer approached him and after briefly chatting said, Wales, do you fear death? Have you ever killed a man? And then <coughs> when Wales says, well, I, I don't fear death, confides a plot in which he and the others, his co-conspirators, and he shows him a piece of paper where he's listed out his plan. We're going to get to the captain. Somebody, somebody will go down to the captain's cabin and they'll dispatch him, likely Spencer himself. Others will take the other officers and dispatch them, throwing them overboard, stabbing and shooting if need be. <clears throat> they'll secure the ship and then they will engage on a piratical cruise Spencer, of course, is no stranger to Tales of Piracy. His favorite book in college was the Pirate's Own Book, published in 1836. And so as he continues to spill this tale to Wales, and now Wales tells the other officers, it's clear that something's happened. They've searched Spencer. They can't find anything. But now they search his cabin. And in a razor case, which is empty, they find a rolled up piece of paper. It's written in Greek. But one of the young officers, Rogers, is able to read that. And what it is, is a plan with a variety of names, some of them seemingly aliases. There's nobody with that name on board. But in this list, this plan of action, it seems indeed that a mutiny is afoot. So it's it's written, I should say, in, in what uh, the British would call Greek cipher. It's English written in the Greek alphabet. Yes, and we'll get back to uh, this this strange combination of piracy and secret societies in, in just a second. So once this finding this damning piece of incriminating evidence, uh, what does Mackenzie then decide to do? Well, Mackenzie has his officers question more and more of them, and ultimately Gansevoort comes back up and says, "Well, it seems that there's something afoot. We can't quite, you know, is is you know." We should arrest him. We may need to arrest others. Um, I think that he's guilty and he's potentially guilty. I think Spencer is, in, is somehow poisoned the minds of some of the crew. Um, so we need to arrest more. And he's there as they begin to, you know, to suspect others. But increasingly, Mackenzie grows concerned that the crew are against him. He sees the boys gathering in knots. They're talking amongst themselves. They're visibly upset. And so with that, it all comes to a head when Small 
and Cromwell that night, um, come on deck with everyone else because they need to slack some of the rigging. This press of wind is straining this, this yard. Uh, the sail is pushing heavily into the wind. And so instead of loosening it, it seems it gets tightened up and it crashes down, nearly drags one of the young boys down, you know, not only onto the deck, but perhaps into the sea. And in this, Mackenzie's convinced that this was a moment that Spencer had been waiting for, that now there was going to be a mad rush. And as the boys all come out, he's armed himself with a Colt Navy pistol, as has Gunsford and the others. And he says, stop, I'll blow the brains out of the first man who steps forward another inch. Panic is beginning to take hold, not only in Mackenzie, but amongst his senior officers. It only gets worse. And so he sends his council of officers down and says, you must find an answer. And that answer is likely the punishment that the Articles of War call for, death. Therein lies the crux of the argument that will follow for nearly two centuries. Was there a mutiny? Was there an imagined mutiny? Was there panic? Was the recourse that Mackenzie would turn to the right one? Could he have waited? Could he have brought them all into New York and had them try to shore? All valid questions. But he presses, he badgers his officers until they come back up and say, Gansevoort says, sir, the officers are of the opinion that there was a mutiny and a mutiny that has been planned, which is just as good as having done the mutiny. And we suggest, we recommend that you hang Spencer and his two principal co-conspirators, Cromwell and Small, who had been involved in the, the, the mass um, incident with the, the breaking of the yard and the near toppling of part of its rig. And so with that, Mackenzie quickly summons his, his crew on deck, but not before he stops and goes over to Spencer and tells him he has five minutes to prepare himself for he is about to die. So the, the sentence is, follows instantaneously upon the termination? Yes. I mean, he just, he's moving fast. And mm -hmm. this will be something that will be debated. It's, is this panic? Is he just trying to get the boy out of the way? There's also a sense he's never liked Spencer for a variety of reasons. And now he's rushing to judgment. Now he has the power as the captain of absolute authority and an authority over life and death on Summers. But the authority to wield is not necessarily the right thing to do in some circumstances. And that's, again, part of a debate that will rage in the immediate aftermath and then resonate through the centuries. Was he justified in putting Spencer and the other two to death. Spencer falls to his knees and begins to cry. The other two men, when they're told, uh, take it, they're older, they take it a little, they take it a little easier, but it's still a tremendous blow and a shock. Um, Cromwell's reading a magazine. He drops it while he's still manacled. He's reading and he, he drops it. He says, this, you know, this will kill his wife. This will kill his mother. Uh, but the captain's firmly convinced. He sits down with Spencer and interrogates him and, and takes down a final statement. And that final statement um, in which the boy pours out his anguish and says, I deserve to die. It's a very dramatic document. As to how much of it is Mackenzie 
putting words into the boy's mouth because he is alone sitting there writing these notes, the, the executioner now has become the father confessor. Um, it makes it a little weird, particularly when they have the subsequent inquiries in court-martial of that looks into the incident. But in that, in this very melodramatic way, Spencer spills out his, his apologies, his woes, talks about what a bad boy he's been. Meanwhile, the captain's not only searched, had his cabin searched, he searched his trunk, and he's found some letters, including letters from his parents, particularly his father, John Canfield Spencer, the Secretary of War, in which the old man scolds the boy for being a rascal, and more than a rascal, a petty thief and, and a disappointment. We know all of this because Captain Mackenzie is the most indiscreet uh, man, and ultimately all of this will be revealed to the rest of the world, much to the fury of the Spencer family. Finally, after all has been done, he takes Spencer, Cromwell, and Small, has hoods put over their heads, lines them up on either side near the mast. The noose is set about them. And as Spencer is an officer, he grants him the privilege of shouting the word fire for a gun to be lit and set off, at which point all of the boys and men in the crew with the whips, that is the long lines that come down the yards on top of the mast to the nooses, they will run with those in quick order and haul the three men up. There's a moment of pause. And finally, an officer, Gansford steps forward and says, Mr. Spencer says he cannot give the word. And with that, Mackenzie doesn't waver. Fire! The gun booms. The three bodies are hoisted aloft quickly. They struggle for minutes. It's a slow, strangling death. And then they're lowered. All of the boys are crying, says at least one account. They're laid out, stripped, washed, heads shaved and prepared for burial. A burial which will take place by lantern light as the sun has gone down, as Captain Mackenzie now gives a speech over the dead bodies, excoriating the three men for their, their crimes, and then commends their souls to the depths. And with a splash over they go, Cromwell and Small in their hammocks, lashed about them with the last stitch that sews them into those shrouds going through the nose, just in case they're still alive. Spencer laid out and buried in his uniform as an officer in two mess chests, or basically, you know, big boxes that have been pulled together to make a coffin. But without his sword, he has forfeited the right to be buried with the sword. He's no longer an officer other than being buried like one. And as they drop Spencer into the water, the coffin breaks. His body tumbles out before it goes to the bottom, dragged down as are the other two, by being lashed to a 32-pound cannonball, which will take them deep into the depths. And with that, another sermon, and the day is done. How far are they from port? They're a few days out from reaching the U.S. Virgin Islands, then the Virgin Islands, and from there, less than a week from New York. And therein lies another argument that will rage. Why do it then? Why not wait and at least get support or help? It could certainly hold them for a couple more days, some would argue. And if not in the Virgin Islands, maybe get them onto a larger ship in some way or form, take them back to New York to stand trial. Why? Why hang them in the middle of the ocean? What compounds all of this is the fact that Mackenzie doesn't stop. 
He sees conspiracy still all around him, and soon he's arrested a number of other boys, all of them now, now bound and in some cases tied up in large canvas sacks in which manacled and with the tops of the sacks tied over their heads. They're on the decks huddled with the rain beating down on them. And in some cases, as one boy would later report, he could only lift the lip of the sack just for a moment to gasp a few breaths or to get some water as the rain came down. Captain McKenzie is an unforgiving man. So a couple questions about that. Is that sack punishment? Is that typical in the United States Navy at the time? Or is that something that McKenzie came up with himself? You don't see it listed generally. I mean, this is a very unusual set of circumstances. Flogging, yes. Hanging, yeah. occasionally, the, yes. The, using the cult for the for the mid, cult, yes. yeah, midshipmen and seamen. Yes, the cult, the, the, the you know, the Starter flogging. Yeah. Yeah. The floggings with the cat and nine tails or with a cult, which is administered to boys. Uh, those are the, the punishments, as well as you can withdraw rations. You can restrict privileges. You don't get to go ashore when they're shore leave, things of that sort. There's a whole rigid set of rules by which the ship is run. But in the case of Summers, because Captain McKenzie is a moralist, because he's a social reformer, because he doesn't like alcohol or tobacco, uh, for all of these reasons, Summers is run as a very tight ship, particularly as a number of these boys, as he sees them, are literally the sweepings of the street, as he would call it. America's five years into a major economic depression. People have lost their jobs, including middle-class families. And many families, and many families have seen themselves literally uh, out on the streets and children abandoned. And so the New York that people would think about in the early 20th century, a city of immigrants in clogged streets and boys sleeping in, in cellars or in open stairwells, that's New York in 1842, and a number of these boys are now on the ship and, and subject to Mackenzie's discipline, which does not make, uh, it does not make um, many of these boys happy, and it certainly is a source of a great deal of friction, particularly you know, with Mackenzie. Uh, one last, before we go back in time uh, to talk about the, the Spencer family, um, there have been other. How often is this? Uh, how often do captains assume their their right to hang a um, the guilty Ex at sea? Exceedingly rare. That hadn't happened for a long, long time. I am, um, in fact, I'm hard pressed to even remember another incident before that. Later, you see an occasional one, a couple of. Sailors threw a young officer overboard in California during the gold rush, for mm -hmm. example, to murdered him to try to run away to the gold mines. When they were captured, they were hanged in San Francisco Bay. But it, it's rare. It's exceedingly rare. The other punishments are more frequently meted out. Mm -hmm. um, let's go back to the Spencers. Uh, they are um, a family that's intimately... I said this is a New York story. Uh, it's... Um, the Spencers are from upstate New York, from western, western, actually Gundagworth. So they're on the St. Lawrence on the, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so their story is intimately borne up with the War of 1812, uh, you know, fighting on the frontier, but then also um, the sort of rise of Western and Northern New York as a political power. 
uh, with the Erie Canal and 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 we go and and the anti Masonic movement. So let's let's talk about that. Well, you can't really understand Philip Spencer until you understand his father John Canfield and his grandfather Ambrose Spencer. These are men with hard, dried ambition, legal minds, at whose dinner tables no point goes undebated, and, and with absolute set principles. They have risen to prominence because Ambrose, the grandfather, has apprenticed to a judge, and while under the judge's roof, has seduced and married his teenage daughter. Um, he ultimately rises to power. He's an advisor to many and a power broker behind the scenes. And he ultimately will become the chief justice of the New York Supreme Court. His son, John Kenfield, is also kiln-dried, as his, his detractors would say, and a man of great ambition. He takes the lead in investigating Masonic crimes, and in particular, the seeming murder of a man who was about to spill Masonic secrets, uh, one of the great controversies. Right. And... It's hard to it's hard to over. This is such a strange controversy to us, but this is really the great conspiracy theory of early nineteenth century America. It's the focus of so much politics, so much controversy. Uh, it's from someone from Canandaigua who is, I think, about to publish a book about the Masons. And this, I mean, at least Daniel Walker Howe says, and he ought to know that he might have been killed by some Masons um, uh, who are don't want their secrets revealed. Uh, yes. And this, this is this is a cause celeb. It's, that's mild. It it is it is it is a it's practically a crisis. This will lead to an anti Masonic political party being formed, and that party will ultimately morph into the Whig Party, mm -hmm. and the Whig Party will ultimately morph into the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And and as all of this is playing out, people are taking sides, but people are also looking at the country's being roiled. Anyway, there are the United States is growing rapidly. Immigration is occurring in increasing numbers, and people are beginning to talk about an America for Americans. Who are these immigrants? Who are these Irish? Who are these others? Who are these Catholics coming here? So you've got that. You also have people saying, look, everything about us is in trouble. We don't educate enough. We drink too much. We sin too much. We, we, we have slavery. And so all of these reform movements are born, including, you know, equal rights, anti-slavery, temperance. And all the ones you're describing are centered in Western New York. Absolutely. As is this religious revival that happens as well, because in a time of crisis, people turn to faith. And there's in opposition to Catholicism. You have a whole variety of sects that are born today. Uh, you know, those many of those churches that we know of today, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, and so many others are created in this time, particularly as religious fervor sweeps so hot and heavy through the region. It's known as the burnt over district because the fires of faith have scorched it. And in the midst of all of this and with the politics, here's John Canfield Spencer surfing that sentiment into a series of political offices within the Whig Party coming out of the anti-Masons. And ultimately, he will become a cabinet officer as Secretary of War in the administration of John Tyler, his accidency, as he was known, because he replaces his dead president, the elected Whig, Zachary Taylor.
and uh, which is important because this is the first that's the first time a, a, a vice president succeeded a president in office so there's there's really something of a constitutional crisis uh, and because uh, Tyler is a southern whig and other whigs discover that southern whigs are not necessarily the right kind of whig um, but because it's the first time this has happened that this is this is uncertain ground and we'll we'll see that in the the incident that was alluded to at the beginning. Uh, uh, but this Philip Spencer, John Canfield Spencer is, is kiln dried. He's tough. He's smart. Uh, he's an infor- one of Alexis de Tocqueville's most inf- important informants for democracy in America. Um, Philip Spencer does not quite seem like he's a chip off the old block. No, he's not. But let me correct something. I said Zachary Taylor, William Henry Harrison, Hippocanoe and Tyler too. So Philip Spencer is the youngest, but only the youngest because the other sibling has died. He's the last one left. And his brothers, Ambrose, John Jr., his sisters, his sisters love him and Molly coddle him, as does his mother particularly when he's the last baby left at home. But in addition to being very preciously coddled by his mother and his sisters, his brothers have used the boy to break into dad's liquor cabinet. They've gotten him to start drinking, basically, you know, as a, as a you know, he's, he's under 10 and he's already getting used to hard drink. Um, he gets into trouble, but part of his problem is that he has strabismus, the, the wandering eye. Um, and with that, um, you know, he's, he's picked on by the other boys, the, the terms that are used and thrown about, you know, you wall-eyed bastard, those sorts of things. They leave a, a mark on the boy, just as, as sure as the mark that some people see with that eye looking that way. And even Mackenzie himself later will say a great deal about that eye. It was seen as an evil thing. Philip's records, you know, which uh, survive in, in the school in Canandaigua where he went, as well as his, his somewhat spotty college career, um, seem him to be fascinated by some subjects. He excelled, he thought, in languages. He loved uh, literature, in particular, the pirate's own book when it was given to him. He didn't do so well in other subjects, but most of his time in school was largely spent trying to win over others. I think, uh, you know, one of the things that's rather clear is when people talk about him, for those who knew him, they loved Phil Spencer. He was a fun guy. He could do fun things. He could mimic other people's voices. He had a, he had a theatricality about him. He could make fun of his own eyes. Uh, he, he could, you know, be a charming type. And ultimately, uh, while he's consistently getting in trouble for stealing, for lying, uh, he's also pulling stunts because he's taken so long to get out of school. One of the stunts he does is when they have a graduation ceremony for a number of other kids in the college, he follows behind wearing a tall conical hat with a streamer. He's designed flying behind it, which says patriarch of the freshman class. You know, he, <laughs> he's funny, but he also has this other side to him, which is somewhat capricious and cruel. And so he ultimately he has to leave school, but not before he founds a, a secret society. And you can imagine what this does for his father. His father, 
which is so so fascinating. I mean, that this is how he rebels. This is this gets us back to. By the way, I'll put this in the show notes. But episode sixteen, Mark Carnes, who's professor at Columbia, who's written on secret societies in the nineteenth century America. This is this is very much connected. But that um, the way that you rebel. Uh, you can see that it's the other side of his father's. There's a there's a fascination of the family with secret societies, and and Philip decides to yes. create one, and so um, he helps create Kaisai, um, and mm-hmm. with that uh, he comes up. He's the one who comes up with the secret handshakes and all the code words and all of the rest, and with these guys helping found Kaisai, uh, he will, which is uh, which is still exists as yes. a fraternity. I think one of the oldest American and in one of the oldest yeah. coming out of one of the oldest American colleges, but also um, a, a fraternity with some rather prominent um, alumni, indeed. Um, and he he literally, ultimately, um, he remains a hero, a wrongly executed hero uh, to the Kaisai's, whose song includes. And here's to Philip Spencer, when when about to die, was heard to shout above the waves, "Long live Kaisai." Fill your glasses to the brim and drink with manly pride. Humanity suffered a blow when Philip Spencer died. So Phil Spencer, as he's known to his friends, uh, leaves college, runs off to Nantucket to become a whaler, makes one quick voyage. His father finds out. His father figured he had to do something with the boy. He thought of sending him off to the army, but then he could run away and be with the Indians, he thought. So the Navy was it. John Canfield's brother was a captain in the Navy. Um, and so they put the boy in the Navy and off he goes, shipped out um, with the squadron to Rio de Janeiro, where he gets into all sorts of trouble. He frequents the baños, the, the brothels. Um, what's not really talked about then much, but you have to dig a little deeper and read between the lines, is he's going to the boy brothels uh, in Rio. He's drinking to excess. He gets into fights, but he's already gotten into fights. When he's first assigned to the Navy in the New York Navy Yard on the receiving ship, uh, one of the young officers is there and takes him under his wing thinking, hey, this is a guy I should get to know. He's the son of the Secretary of War. And he lets Spencer use his cabin. Well, Spencer uses the cabin to hide booze and to drink. And when this guy says, hey, wait a minute, Spencer doesn't like it. And in one incident, he is sitting in his cabin. Spencer comes in. He says, get out. And all of a sudden, he has this crashing blow to the side of his face. Spencer's sucker punched him, knocked him to the deck, and torn his uniform. And he gets up to fight. And this is a pretty serious offense. He's the, this boy struck a superior officer. It just hushed up and, and pushed away. And the officer ends up resigning. Spencer you know, we'll also get into scrapes. And he actually punches a couple of the other midshipmen on the summers when he's assigned to it as well. He's, he's a bit of a coward, a blusterer, but he has this other charming side. If he likes you, he's the best of friends. If he doesn't, he's the worst of enemies. And he's constantly, constantly on the make for something that can make him happy. Be it a drink, be it a smoke of a cigar, be it sex. But he's also, and we alluded to this earlier, it's very strange that he's like 19 going on nine. And his favorite book is a book about pirates. Yes. Yes. 
This is no. This is this is known long before the spent the conspiracy or a suggestion of conspiracy. People know that he's obsessed with pirates. Absolutely, and in fact, when his professor back from the days and kind of at the academy, you know, basically his his his, his schoolmaster says that boy was ruined by that book. Okay, so what's the Nate? We've talked a little bit about this. Um, Alexander Slidell McKenzie is a reformer in the United States Navy. Um, is the Navy, the Navy, the Army is what, 16,000 men at the beginning of the Civil War. The Navy must be even smaller. Um, it's a small society. Talk about secret societies. It's a small society in which people know things about rope and knots and, you know, which way the wind's coming from and if there's going to be a storm. So it's kind of a secret society with esoteric knowledge. Um, is it a reforming institution? I mean, what's its, what's its culture like in 1842? The Navy is a traditional organization which has been born out of adversity, not only in terms of being forged in war with the Revolution and then the War of 1812, but also with its ongoing struggle against pirates on the high seas, particularly in and out of the Caribbean and in the Gulf of Mexico and off Puerto Rico, to its job to increasingly interdict illegal slave ships coming in to bring people once the slave trade is abolished. But it's also grown up with this bogest of an ideal where its officers are gentlemen and they, they form an aristocracy. Certain families come to have generations of officers serving in them, the Perrys being one, the Rogers being others, and of course, then the other great ideal being Stephen Decatur, hero of the Barbary Wars against the Barbary pirates, and who ultimately uh, has to be propped up in his final you know, these guys are these guys are they're, they're shooting each other in duels over honor. And ultimately, it's that honor that uh, will play a role in Mackenzie's life, because Mackenzie marrying into the Perry clan uh, not only gains a, a well-connected naval family. His brother will, is Commodore Perry, who will later famously open Japan, but is then at that stage the commandant of the New York Navy Yard and the man to whom he answers to. Um, when the decision is made to turn Summers and its sister brig, the Bainbridge, into sail training vessels. The Navy has been a favorite of the people, but in this new time, by the 1830s, moving into the 1840s, there's distrust. It's elitist. It's closed. It's a family thing. And to be an officer in the Navy can be a question of, just as it was with the British Navy, of basically buying yourself in. You can be, a, you can be put in and you can serve as a, a captain's clerk. You can start. And that's how Mackenzie is brought in, thanks to the Perrys. Uh, he, because his sister marries first into the clan, comes in as a young, basically, apprentice and learns the ropes by experience. There's no school or training. Um, some officers better themselves by reading and, and reading heavily. Others do not. So what you have is a, a Navy that is ruled at the top by a handful of families, a Navy which has just come out of a period in which it's been authorized to build up because Andrew Jackson, as president, believes in a strong naval force, but a Navy which is still seen as rife with problems, with elitism, uh, a Navy that has not fought in a major conflict for some time. A Navy that also is seen as a place where if you want to send your kid to hell, if you want to 
send him into a situation that couldn't be any worse, you could either send him to prison or send him to the Navy on a ship. <laughs> so with that, because sailors are seen as full of vice, they smoke, they drink, they fornicate. And if they're not fornicating ashore in, in a house of ill repute, they're fornicating with each other on the high seas. Um, and so the Navy is in need of reform, and a number of officers write about this, including Alexander Slidell Mackenzie. And this 1842, is that the year that they eliminate the liquor ration? Is it or, or around about then? They're getting to it. I mean, it doesn't ultimately get abolished until the end of World War One, with Josephus Daniels. Okay. But they're looking to cut that ration down. I mean, basically, first off, sailors traditionally drink beer because water is bad. You can also get a totter of rum to help inure yourself to the hardships of the cold or the duty that you, you have. So you could you were drinking, but it was a flogging offense to be drunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's for I, what you said. Eight ounces of of rum was the it was the U.S. Navy ration. So you know, four cocktails. Well, it's like a cruise with four cocktails. That's a it's quite a wonderful thing. Um, so we've talked about the problems with the summers. Um, what one one thing to clarify: one hundred twenty people on board a brig, which is supposed to have about ninety, but these are both future officers, but also future seamen, because there's no place to train either officers or future seamen. There's no basic training. This is all, this is to train both. This is to train both. And in some case, everybody that's on board really is, there's a handful of experienced people, but Mackenzie doesn't have a, a group of Marines to protect him as other captains will. He doesn't have a full corps of officers. Um, and many of them are family or family friends. It's a very nepotism-ridden Navy, and Summer's wardroom is exactly one of those types of places. And it's a sort of a closed group. It's a clan, if you will. It's the extended Perry clan. Um, and all of a sudden, now comes Phil Spencer, who, when he arrives, fresh out of nearly being court-martialed and thrown out but given another chance, his parting remarks, by the way, as he sailed out of Rio to his colleagues on the ship was, God damn the Navy! <laughs> um, he ultimately will say when they ask him, do you like the Navy? I like it. I hate it. I hate it. But here he is, and these guys close ranks. They don't even want to talk with him. The bunk they give him, the hammock that is slung because they're so crowded in this tiny room, basically is above the entrance, in and out of there. So whenever somebody comes in in the middle of the night or whenever... Phil Spencer is sleeping. They brush right up under him and mm-hmm. under his cot, or his, I should say, his, his hammock. Um, it's not happy. But then he shows up with a box of cigars, which he begins to pass out, not only to some of the boys, but also to some of the black stewards who are working in, in on board the ship as ship's servants, which certainly riles up a couple of the other officers because slavery is the law of the land. And while these and are not enslaved, they are black. And this is just, I mean, he's being way too fraternal with them. And there's some suspicion that he's actually having sex with one of them, uh, as well as a couple of the boys. Um, He throws coins on the deck to get the younger kids, the little guys, to scramble and refers to them as the small fry. Um, It's Phil Spencer is really a square peg in a round hole on a very crowded ship where even Captain Mackenzie has not really fully been tested at sea in command. 
So now he's dead. They return to New York. And then what happens? Well, initially, when they arrive off the New York Navy Yard, they keep everybody on board. The officers stagger ashore like drunken men because they've not slept with arms, you know, pistols at their sides. They've watched the crew carefully. They go to the chapel and pray to thank uh, the Lord for, for their deliverance from evil and from potential death. Captain McKenzie writes the first of a couple of letters to, um, to the Secretary of the Navy. Um, ultimately, one of Mackenzie's friends will say, oh, that my friend should have written such a letter because Mackenzie is a literary man and he likes to write as he likes to say too much. He puts words in Spencer's mouth. He writes this, this lengthy account, which he then will expand upon. And in that um, is his own worst enemy. He really sows doubt over his actions. And when his very self-exculpatory account is published, well, at first people are saying, oh, thank God the honor of the Navy's been upheld. Could you imagine what would happen if the ship had been taken and suddenly they're cruising off our ports where our ships would be despoiled on their way to England or back, where men might be put to the sword and where their wives and daughters might become the brides of pirates? It shifts particularly after John Canfield Spencer writes an anonymous account in a Washington newspaper where he raises some very key points. He's a lawyer, and he makes his points well and lands them solidly. Uh, and thus the controversy begins. Now, it doesn't hurt that Mackenzie's already disliked by others, particularly James Fenimore Cooper. Now, that famous author has always thought not much of Mackenzie. He's just a trifling guy. Even um, so far as, um, you know, being not only dismissive of his books, but um, particularly ired over the fact that Mackenzie writes a review of, of um, Cooper's History of the War of 1812. And in it, Mackenzie goes way overboard in ascribing too much to uh, the actions of Oliver Hazard Perry in the Battle of Lake Erie, uh, disdaining the contributions of McDonough, his, his second in command. And it's, it's a long story, but basically there's a controversy that brewed between Perry and McDonough. Uh, uh, Je Je Jesse Elliott, was it? Jesse Elliott, yes. Yeah, And there's been a, and this is one of these like like Decatur versus uh, Baron and the yes. Perrys versus the Elliots. This is one of these yes. family feuds that uh, <laughs> all their relatives are in the Navy, it would seem, and then yeah. they end up fighting each other, cutting each other, fight, having duels, um, all the rest of this crap. But with that, yes, Jesse Elliott's actions uh, on that day and this feud between the two clans, uh, they choose Mackenzie as the family author to write this repudiation in the review of, of Cooper's book. And Cooper's infuriated. He doesn't take slights easy either. And so this feud is just, I mean, it just delights Cooper when this thing breaks out because he's, he's no fan of the elitists Navy. He's no fan of the Perrys. And uh, here's a chance not only to sting Mackenzie, but also to sting the Perrys, because Oliver Hazard Perry Jr. is one of the officers on the summer, and old Brune's son, uh, you know, and, you know, that is, uh, you know, Tony. Matthew Calberth Perry, you know, who, the Commodore, and at that stage, just uh, the captain in charge of the New York or the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Um, other people weigh in. 
Richard Henry Dana. I mean, all sorts of folks begin to pile in uh, on this. They, ultimately, the, the Secretary of the Navy has to call a court of inquiry. And the court of inquiry listens carefully. Mackenzie prosecutes the boys, basically. He's kept many of them still under arrest on the summers. Uh, when that leaks and when the sh captain of a nearby ship orders them taken off because they're suffering terribly from cold and illness, and he's not convinced all of them are guilty, but at least guilty or not, they deserve good treatment. They deserve fair treatment. Lodge them in jail ashore, not continue to keep them on the ship. Uh, ultimately, you know, what will happen and what will bear out is nobody else is prosecuted other than by Mackenzie in the court of inquiry saying, you're a liar, you did this, you did that. In his defense, Mackenzie says too much. He's already said too much in writing. And now as he basically is there answering questions to a, a tribunal of senior officers, he brings a number of these boys forward. He brings others forward. And in this, the entire tale spills out. Um, and in it, it's pretty clear now that Philip Spencer did say these things. Um, his father will say that it was the heedless romance of a schoolboy. But he did go too far, um, and that does come out. He has indeed mocked and played with the captain's authority. He has done things that are, at worst, um, encouraging you know, dissension on board the ship, undermining the captain's authority. Um, and he's also guilty of fraternization, as the Navy will call it. And he deserved to be arrested, and he deserved to be punished. Did he deserve to die really is the question that was being looked at then and is the question that's still asked today. Mackenzie doesn't help himself by just going too far in his descriptions and his statements and in the fact that he has released these damning letters from Spencer's parents to him, chiding him for his indiscretions and for stealing from them and his mother's disappointment in him. And in a very unseemly way, that's out there now in the public. This is the way one fights, you know, basically is what people are saying. And people, people meanwhile, have split into two camps. There are those who think that Mackenzie is the ideal of the Navy. He's a, he's a moral man. He's upholding the right thing. And his humble origins speak powerfully to how the Navy should be run, uh, not by a, a small cabal, um, not understanding in some quarters that he is still part of that cabal. Right. He married into it. Um, uh, he, he got ahead in the, in the classic way, marrying up. Um, so the result of all this is that the court-martial acquits him. Well, um, the, the court of inquiry is not, it, they, they basically rule that his actions were justified, but that doesn't make anybody happy. And civil lawsuits are springing up. Cromwell's wife is suing him. The families of some of the boys that have been arrested are also calling for their son's releases and threatening legal action. And ultimately, a couple of them will sue him. Um, and he remains at risk. They actually have, there's a behind the scenes court battle to keep him from going into civil court outside of the Navy, where he could potentially be accused of murder and convicted. But the Navy does not want that to happen. No, they don't. And so he goes before a court martial. Now, again, he faced death if it was proven with the charges filed against him. 
that he had, you know, basically murdered these guys, as well as all of the other things where he'd lost control and so on and so on and so on. Uh, the court-martial acquits him, but the story that goes is that it was with a certain amount of, hmm, and doubt, and, well, we must vote to acquit, but not everybody was happy in that. That may have not been the original vote when they went around the table. He will dispute that and fight that, it's out there. So it's a couple of very interesting connections. Uh, one thing this leads to, as I said in the intro, it leads to a fight in the cabinet. <laughs> Tyler's cabinet is already divided. Uh, and here is John Canfield Spencer uh, and Abel Upshur, who's a fellow Virginian of Tyler's, Secretary of the Navy. They get into it and Upshur breaks a stool over uh, Spencer's head uh, or something like And Tyler breaks up the fight. So this is part of the you know, this is this is the, the the political war that was always going already going on in in the cabinet, continuing uh, for with personal motivations. Um, but it's very interesting to see the way in which this led to reforms in the navy, um, and it's very reflective of the anti Masonic panic. It's very reflective of stuff you see going on in higher education. Uh, throughout the United States at the time. So could we describe some of the, what, what, how this began to change the Navy and the way that it did its education? Well, rather than training by going out to sea and being subjected to that environment, what people were arguing for, and it argued already for, was an academy not unlike West Point. And ultimately, those, those recommendations, those suggestions moved forward abetted a bit by what had happened with Summers uh, in the creation under George Bancroft, the Secretary of the Navy, with the United States Naval Academy, not then known as that, and ultimately established in Annapolis. Uh, it is one of the origins. It's one of the causative factors, but not the sole factor in creating the Naval Academy and changing the way officers are to be trained uh, and educated. And in that as well, uh, a curriculum that speaks to various aspects, including the law, including history, including literature and science and mathematics, as well as the art of sailing and working on a ship, as well as hopefully some ideas to how to effectively command, um, which Mackenzie, clearly, if he'd taken that class, I think he would have failed. Yeah. But as you said, uh, what we were talking earlier, the court-martial had to acquit him. They absolutely had to acquit him. They could not hang Mackenzie. Um, so he was let go. Um, and for some, he remained a hero. But for many others, he, he was a murderer. His reputation was stained. He didn't last long. It, it plagued him. He went back home to his estate on the banks of the Hudson. Uh, and there was began to write again, writing his biographies of past naval heroes. He took a ride into a nearby town. Um, suffered what appears to have been a stroke, fell, struck his head, was taken into a nearby house and died. Um, that's not before, however, he returns briefly to naval service during the war with Mexico. But essentially his career was over, um, but called upon on occasion, again, thanks to Commodore Perry, his brother-in-law, one, to act as a secret agent to go to Cuba and talk to San Antonio, Santo, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the former Mexican dictator, soon to become dictator again, in an effort to adjudicate the brewing crisis that will lead to the Mexican War. Santana is said to have proclaimed, uh, who is this fool that they have sent me, when Mackenzie comes in. 
um, Mackenzie was a, a pompous sort. Um, Mackenzie will then go and serve um, with Perry in his ship, will briefly command another vessel um, during the Mexican War. But his career is basically, it's essentially over, and he does not live long um, past, you know. And it's during the Mexican War that the Summers comes to an end, is that? Well, Summers is no longer being used as a sail training ship, neither is Bainbridge. They're also, I should say, very difficult ships to work. Why? They're fast built, they're rigged in such a way that it takes a great deal of hard work and exceptional skill. And the breaking of the rigging in the mast that led to fears that something was afoot was really the fact that it had not been rigged right. And one of the reasons I think Cromwell ended up getting hanged is that once he shifted from being an ally of Mackenzie's to more of an ally of Spencer's because he liked the way the boy was dealing with the humbug, he would say things like, damn this rigging and damn the fool that rigged it, knowing that Captain Mackenzie, as the commanding officer, had ordered it rigged in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a difficult ship to work, and it was overcrowded, and it now has this reputation, and so it's turned back to the regular Navy and becomes a, a fast dispatch ship armed with 10 guns uh, in the home squadron, operating in and around American waters. Um, And ultimately, when the war with Mexico breaks out, Summers is dispatched along with many other Navy ships into the Gulf of Mexico to effect a naval blockade of the Mexican coast, primarily the port of Veracruz. But at the same time this is happening, Summers has already gained a reputation. As one man, Richard Rogers, will say when he goes to join her as an officer, he's warned. Best be rid of her as fast as you can. Bam, bad luck follows her since the mutiny. Um, There are newspaper accounts that suggest, you know, through the years that every officer involved will die a mysterious or bad death. That's not true, but there it is. And it doesn't help that when Summers, um, in uh, the war with Mexico in December of 1846, is cruising off Veracruz under the commander Raphael Semmes, noted naval officer who later will become quite famous as a Confederate admiral, um, is pursuing what they think to be a blockade runner off the port of Veracruz when the lieutenant turns to Semmes and says, uh, it looks a bit squally to windward, sir. And with that, a big norte, one of the types of storms that comes in out of the Gulf and hits the coast, struck summers being lightly ballasted, as they said at the time, short on provisions and fully rigged was blown over onto its side, and it went down with 32 of the crew. As Semmes had shouted, everyone saved themselves who can. A couple of boats were launched. Boats from nearby ships helped pull others out of the water, but some sank in 110 feet of water, gone. Um, and never forgotten, but now um, down into the depths. But not before Rogers would say that when he served on board it, The crew were very superstitious, thought that she was bound for the devil, and actually one night refused to go aloft in a storm and in the dark because they claimed the bodies of the three hanged men were up there, laughing at them. And he thought for a moment he could see something but wasn't sure. And in the morning when the captain of the foretop and he met, he said, it's all right, sir, it's all right. You gentlemen, you know, on the quarter deck, you may not see all that we see, but we do see this stuff. And so Summers passes into legend as well as uh, literary fame. You And you have dived on the wreck of the Summers. 
Yes, uh, my good friend George Belcher, um, who was an art dealer working with the governor of that, that Mexican province to fill art and also work to um, find archaeological sites that could be excavated and to go into the Provincial Museum in Jalapa, uh, went out and surveyed and found what he thought to be the wreck of Summers based on the old charts that said, here's where it sank off of Isla Verde. Uh, I was the archaeologist that he asked to go and verify the find. And so we did that, 1985, 1986, and in 1987 uh, with dives that confirmed that their Summers was indeed a copper-clad ghost sitting more or less upright on the bottom. The upper work's gone, the rigging away, but still more or less sort of off to one side, and you could actually see the outlines in the sand of where all of the iron parts of the rigging on the masts um, indicated where they'd been consumed by, by marine organisms. How did you determine that it was the Summers? It was in the right place. It was exactly the right size, and the entire form of the hull was perfectly preserved by the copper sheathing. Mm -hmm. uh, you could actually see all of that. It had all of the guns in place, and that was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, everything was laid out. Here's the stove. Here's the pumps. Here's the anchors. Here's the handling for the, the rigging. Here at the back end were the arms chests with the ship's chronometer, its, its, its navigational clock, its, um, its instruments, the swords, the pistols. Um, U.S. naval vessel. I mean, some of the stuff was Navy issue. Um, I mean, there was a whole range of things that said, yes, it was Summers. And in that, what struck me powerfully, seeing that site repeatedly, diving it, was just how small it is. Mm -hmm. And with that, an understanding then of how this panic could happen. If you're not used to command, if you're unsure of yourself, as I think Mackenzie was, quietly and secretly, suddenly you've got all these boys on board. You've got this social better that you will not acknowledge as your social better, mocking you and making fun of you. This had to not only infuriate Mackenzie, it had to frighten him. And so when you suddenly have all these boys who in the moment you could, this could overwhelm you and throw you overboard, all it would take was a quick shove and a push and over the side you could go. Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure that he and his officers panicked. And if not all of the officers panicked, at least some of them were pushed into it because the captain's authority was absolute. Gert Gansefort, it was said, was never the same again. He drank heavily throughout his life and ultimately uh, was a broken man but not before he confided the story to a few family members, including apparently his cousin, Herman Melville. Well, my guest today has been James Delgado. He is the author of The Curse of the Summers, The Secret History Behind the U.S. Navy's Most Infamous Mutiny. And if you know someone who likes Jack Aubrey or Horatio Hornblower or anything of that sort, this is the sea story to give them for Christmas. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for being with, with us and being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 